Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows, while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We all have people in our lives that are in authority over us. Uh, one of those peoples or entities that's in authority over us is the government. In uh, the 1950s, there was polling that was done, and uh, approximately 70% of Americans had uh, a strong amount of faith in the government and the direction that the government was going. A recent survey conducted a few years ago now finds that about 3% of Americans today have a great amount of faith in the government. Faith in the government today might be at an all-time low. Further, the government and the culture in general has been at least somewhat antagonistic to Christianity and Christian values. And uh, I know that we come from all different political spectrums, from talking to people in the congregation. I know that we're all over the map when it comes to politics. But if I was to ask everyone to raise their hand, I'm not asking everyone to do this, but if I were, if I was to say, if you're really excited about the way the government is going and the way that our direction, the direction of our country is going, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, I, I bet there wouldn't be many people, if any, that would raise their hands. So that's the case. The majority of us don't like the direction that our country is going, the direction of our government. We don't have a lot of faith in the government. So that's kind of one authority that we have over us. Another authority that many of us have over us is an employer, a boss. Maybe that employer we don't maybe agree with how he or she does business, how they operate their business, how they manage. Maybe we feel that they don't treat people fairly. Maybe we feel that they're uh, misguided in the way that they direct people. And so the question that we're going to look at today is, How do we live under authority that we don't necessarily agree with or isn't exactly God-honoring? How do we live under authority that we don't agree with? 
Last week we talked about the fundamental mark of a healthy church. And that fundamental mark was worship. And we talked about how Peter uh, describes the church, the church's mission as uh, proclaiming the excellencies or proclaiming the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so that's our goal as a church. And now he's going to kind of put flesh onto that. What does that look like in our everyday lives? And what does that look like in relationship to how we deal with those who are in authority over us? So first, he's going to give a general command about refraining from sin. Then he's going to talk about how we relate to the government and then how we relate or how uh, servants or slaves relate to masters. And then he's going to talk about the husband and wife relationship. Today we're going to talk about the first two of those. We're going to talk about how we relate to the government and how we relate to those over us, maybe employers. We don't have, you know, not, not talking about servant-master relationship, but an employer-employee relationship. And so we're going to talk about those two things today. But first, Peter gives this kind of general command. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain from the passion of of the flesh. This word for abstain literally means to be distant from. And Peter is saying, just like you are exiles and sojourners, just like you're distant from your homeland, I want you to be slaves or exiles and sojourners in relationship to sin. I want you to be far away from sin. I don't want sin to be your homeland. I want you to be exiles in regard to sin. And Peter tells his readers to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable, living lives of integrity in the midst of an ungodly culture. But there's this temptation that Peter's readers might have faced. They might have thought to themselves, well, I know that I'm redeemed. I know that Christ has purchased my freedom. I know that I have this imperishable inheritance. I know that nobody can take that away from me. And so because of that, maybe I shouldn't, I don't need to worry about what anybody else says. I don't need to worry about what the government says. I don't need to worry about what my master says. I don't need to worry about what my spouse says. I am following Jesus. I'm his servant. I'm just going to do what he tells me to do. I don't need to worry about anybody else. And Peter says, hold on a second. Hold on a second. He talks about the government first. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject to every human institution. Now we look at this command, and maybe when we look at this command, we think of kind of exemptions. Like, So he's saying to be subject to every human institution. Well, what about governments that do things that are terrible. What about the government in Nazi Germany during World War II? Of course, in the Scripture, Jesus says that we're to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. So if the government calls us to do something that is immoral, that would harm somebody else, of course we're not supposed to follow along with that. God's law always trumps man's law. So that's not the point here. But Peter isn't, a, isn't talking to Nazi Germany, or this quite as an oppressive regime. He's talking about a more normal situation where maybe the government isn't perfect, it's far from perfect, it has a lot of flaws, but in general it upholds the good and it punishes evil. That those who do evil are punished and put in jail or whatnot. Those who do good are praised. In the ancient culture, they would be praised by people who would do things for the state 
uh, maybe there would be a monument or something built for them. And so that was kind of the function of the government. Evildoers would be punished. People who had virtue would be praised. And so he's talking about that general situation. And of course, we know it wasn't a perfect situation. The government was at least mildly or moderately antagonistic towards Christians. There wasn't a statewide persecution. But they certainly weren't friendly towards Christians. We also know that many people believe that the emperor himself was God incarnate. That he was part of the divine family. And yet Peter tells his readers to submit to this authority. And he says to submit to, as it's translated in the ESV, submit to human institutions. The literal translation of that is human creatures. Now why would Paul translate it that way? Why would he phrase it that way? I think probably he's phrasing that way to underscore the fact that they're just human constructs. Yes, they're just Human governments are just human creations. They have no ultimate authority over you. They can't change your salvation. They can't ultimately harm you. Yet, because you're a follower of Christ, because you're a servant of Jesus, you should submit to them. They don't have any authority. But he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He says, you're free with regard to them. They can't hurt you. Yet because of Christ, submit yourselves willingly to them. And so Peter tells them, live as good citizens of the state. Where honor is due, show honor. Where respect is due, show respect. That way, when people around you see you, they don't bring, when they try to bring charges against you, those charges will fall flat because people will see that you're just good, honorable, virtuous citizens of the state. So he says, submit to the governing authorities. Then he goes further and he applies these principles to the master-slave relationship, master-servant relationship. Now, what he's saying here to the modern mind is, is downright shocking. It's downright amazing what he says. He says, servants, be subjects to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the unjust ones. Now, slavery during this time frame was a little bit different than the slavery we might be more familiar with, um, the slavery that occurred in our country. Um, slaves in that time could be educated. Uh, they were often tasked with important roles like educating the children in the household. But that being said, it still could be, it could be a decent arrangement for the slave, but it also could be a very harsh relationship. It could be a really harsh arrangement. Abuse was common, beatings were common, and yet Peter still calls on slaves to be subject to their masters with all respect. Now, it might be hard for us to imagine why he would say this, but think about it this way. Imagine that Peter would have given them a different command. Imagine he would have said, you know, your, your owners, your, your masters, they're unjust. If they're unjust, then you can just rebel. If they do something that's harmful to you, then you know, just turn around, give them a good sock in the face, and everything will be good. Now, if they do that, what's going to happen? The master is going to be very, very angry. He's, the slave is going to get beat. He's going to get beat severely. And no matter what the reasoning behind it was, everyone who looks at that situation is going to say, 
He has a rebellious slave. He has a bad slave who rebelled against him. The master is going to feel justified. My slaves, uh, he's rose against me. I, he deserved a beating. But Peter says, but if you're beating because of your faith in Jesus, or because your faith in Jesus causes you to uphold some standard, then it's a gracious thing in the eyes of God. That God looks with favor upon the one who suffers unjustly. Now, when we look at this passage too, we might wonder, why doesn't Peter come out and directly oppose slavery? Why doesn't he just come out and say, slavery is wrong, you should just give up this institution, it's a terrible, oppressive institution. Why doesn't he do that? Well, during the time that this was written, uh, the household relationships and the ordering of household relationships were considered to be very important. And so as such, there were a number of household codes that were given by uh, various thinkers and writers in the ancient day, and they governed how relationships would be ordered, how slaves would relate to masters, how husbands would relate to wives and whatnot. And so there would be all these orders or household orders because in the ancient world, these relationships were not just private affairs. It was not just something that happened within the household. It was something that was believed to be at the very core of the social fabric of the day. So there was kind of this great fear of any group that would attempt to change the social order. You know, there was this fear that these new groups would come about and they would you know, proclaim that slaves should rebel, that uh, wives should uh, have uh, authority over their husbands. There was one uh, example was the Egyptian Isis cult, not the same Isis as we know today, uh, but it taught that a woman could have authority over men, and it was taught that that was a threat to the natural order. And so Christianity is in its very early stages, and people were suspicious of it, that in Christianity, they, that Christians were trying to subvert the social order of society. So if, pe- pe- if Peter would have come out and said, slavery is wrong, slaves should rebel, the marriage relationship is, needs to be changed, the hammer of people's wrath would have fallen fully on Christians because of that. And what would have happened was, as people saw that and they heard, oh, these Christians are saying that slaves should rebel, that the whole social order should be changed, what would happen in that was people would miss kind of the point of the gospel. They would know Christians as the one who wanted to make slaves rebel, not as the ones who believed that Jesus came to the earth to save His people from their sins. It's almost, I was thinking of an illustration. Imagine a friend comes to me and says, you really need to exercise. So uh, what I want you to do is I want you to meet me tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock and we're going to do some running. I'm like, okay, I don't want to get up that early. I know for Patrick that's easy, but for me it's not easy to get up that early. Uh, so I get up 5.15, get everything ready, and I go, and I show up, and I'm ready, ready to run. And uh, my friend looks at me, he's like, are you going to run in those shoes? Don't you have any better shoes than that? It's like, well, I guess I have some other shoes I could wear. Go home, get some other shoes, come back and run. So I go home and I get some, another pair of shoes. Come back. It's like, where's your water bottle? How are you going to work out without water? Like, oh, okay. All right, fine. 
We'll just do it without water today. Hopefully you don't pass out and die, but it'll be okay for today. So he's like, okay, start running. So I start running. And he's like, hold on a second. Your form's all wrong. You're supposed to be putting it on the ball of your feet. And he's correcting all my form. I'm like, okay. So I'm trying to get the form down. So finally I get that better. And then he's like, okay, you kind of got the form better now, but you're not running fast enough. You've got to go faster and faster. And then finally I get to the point where I'm like, okay, listen. I mean, it was hard enough to get out of bed to come here at 5.15, get out of bed at 5.15 to meet you at 6 o'clock. I mean, just getting up and getting here was a big task. And I think that's kind of what Peter and the writers of Scripture are trying to do. They're trying to get people to wake up, to get out of bed, so to speak. I mean, there's a number of other things that could be changed. But Christianity didn't come first and foremost to change social structures. It's to change people's hearts. And as people experience the gospel and come to know God through the gospel, it's then through those individuals that the society starts to change. That these oppressive structures start to change. That these injustices start to change. Theologian Miroslav Wolf writes it this way, The call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. So Peter doesn't come out and say clearly, slavery is wrong, give it up. Yet though he doesn't do that, though he calls on slaves to submit to their masters, he does provide some critiques of the culture and some kind of hints of the direction that the gospel should take us. In the ancient world, when these household codes were given, they were never addressed to slaves directly because it was believed that the slaves had no capability of making moral choices. And so it might say slaves should never rebel against their masters, but it would never directly address them, never directly address the slaves. Here in this passage, Peter is directly addressing the slaves, and he is treating them as moral agents, and he's treating them as people made in the image of God who are able to glorify God and give honor to God through their actions. This would have been surprising and revolutionary during the time that Peter was writing. In addition, in ancient culture, in ancient household codes and whatnot, it was believed that slaves had to have the same gods as their master. It wasn't like a slave could just choose their own god. But Peter completely does away with that, and he assumes that the slaves would follow after the true god no matter what their master said, or no matter what gods their master believed in. So, Peter tells slaves to obey, but he also critiques their views of slavery in the process. So how do we apply these things to our life? How do we apply this, these passages that speak of authority in a culture that's very different than the culture that this was written in? I think we can apply it to our life by applying one principle, I think, that affects how we deal with authority. And the principle is this. It's better to endure an injustice to bring God glory than to rebel against it and bring God shame. 
It's better to endure an injustice to bring God glory than to rebel against it and bring God shame. This message is completely countercultural. Our existence as a nation is literally built upon the idea of revolution. Our culture is built on the idea of rights and privileges. And we're told that our rights must be honored and that we should demand that our rights are honored. And if they're not, then we need to rectify the situation to make sure that people honor us and honor our rights. But the Gospel calls calls us to lay down our lives. To lay down our privileges for the sake of other people. So what does that mean for us as citizens of the United States of America? It means that we become good citizens. That we seek the betterment of our country. That we don't resort to endless complaining or grumbling or bitterness. Even when we don't agree with everything that's going on. It means we follow the laws. We pay our taxes. We respect those around us. We honor our leaders, even if our leaders don't deserve honoring. Even if our leaders don't deserve any praise or respect. And then as the world sees us, they recognize that we're just good ordinary citizens. That we're virtuous people. And that will draw people to Christ. And it's easy for us sometimes, you know, at in the political world, when the person that we like is in office, then it's easy for us to say, oh, we should, all, we should honor our president, we should honor our senators, we should honor our governor. When it's, it's easy for us when the person that we like is in charge. But it's not just for when the person we like is in charge. It's when the person we don't like at all. That's when it's difficult. But no matter if we like who's in office or not, we're called to respect them. To honor them. To be good citizens. As it relates to slaves, hopefully none of us are slaves, but might feel like that at our workplaces sometimes. Many of us here are employees. We have bosses over us who maybe don't respect us. Maybe don't respect our work. The efforts that we've put into our job. But as believers, even when we have a difficult boss, I mean, it's easy if we have a boss, as it says in, the, in this ta- passage, of someone who's gentle and kind. It's easy to follow a boss that's gentle and kind. It's hard when we're following a boss that's unjust. But even when we're following a boss that's unjust, we're called to do our best, to show them due respect and honor, not to result to grumbling or bitterness. Even when we get passed over for the promotion. Even when we get blamed for something we didn't do. Even when we're looked down upon. And when we do that, when we do our best, show respect, even when our bosses don't deserve it, it brings glory to God. It will point people to Jesus. Peter concludes the passage by giving us our ultimate example, Jesus Christ says in the text, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was the victim of many injustices. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was crucified, and yet he didn't fight back. He endured injustices to bring God glory.
But imagine that he did. Imagine that he did fight back. Imagine that as he was walking down the road headed to Jerusalem, as people were jeering at him, as the soldiers were mocking him, imagine that he turned around and he cursed them and he called down fire from heaven upon everybody in the whole city. Now, he certainly would have been justified if he did. They deserved it. But it would have brought shame to God's name. And today, if we thought it back upon Jesus coming to the earth, we'd say, well, remember when Jesus came to the earth and he did some nice things for people? He healed some people. He raised a dead person. But then at the end, he kind of went haywire and he kind of just killed everybody. But Jesus didn't do that. He submitted himself to God's will. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant or took on the form of a slave. He became like a slave. He endured injustice to bring God glory. And we see how God is brought glory through the cross and what Jesus did even, even right after it happened. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, it says, It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now there was a centurion. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The centurion saw Jesus as the lamb who was led to slaughter, who opened not his mouth, who suffered injustice for the cause of God's kingdom. And it says that he praised God because of the example that Jesus set of what He did in the cross. And because Jesus has done that for us, we can also do that for others. We can endure injustice so that God would be glorified. So that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. There's an old story about um, famous... um, all-star and Hall of Famer uh, Wade Boggs, who played for the Boston Red Sox. And uh, Wade Boggs hated going to Yankee Stadium. Um, It wasn't because of the Yankees. It was because of a fan that would always heckle him. Just one particular fan had uh, this luxury box or whatnot uh, behind behind the dugout or, or somewhere in close proximity. And throughout the whole game, this one fan would just keep yelling obscenities at him and just, you know, trying to tear him down. One day before the game, uh, Boggs was warming up and the fan started his uh, typical uh, heckling routine. And he just started yelling things at him, Boggs, you stink and whatnot. And Boggs decided finally this was enough. And so he started walking over towards the man and this fan had a number of friends around him. And Boggs said, he's like, are you the one that keeps yelling at me and heckling me? And the guy's like, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy. So what are you going to do about it? So then he reaches in his pocket and he takes a brand new baseball out of his pocket. He takes a pen, he signs it, and he tosses it to the man. 
And then he walked off back to the dugout for his uh, pregame routine. After that, the man never yelled at Boggs again. In fact, he ended up becoming one of Boggs' biggest fans at Yankee Stadium. It's because he showed the man grace. Because he endured an injustice. He gave the man something that he certainly didn't deserve. And his followers of Jesus sometimes were called to do the same. We're called to show people grace even when they don't deserve it. Even when they deserve the justice and wrath of God. We show them grace. We endure the injustice for God's glory. And God works through that to bring Himself glory. To point people to Jesus. To show people the change that Jesus can make in our lives. That He can change us from people who are vengeful to people who show grace and mercy to God. Who ultimately trust that God is the one who can judge. God is the one who will vindicate. And we simply show grace to those around us. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You endured injustice for us. That You didn't retaliate, but when You were reviled, when You were spoken ill of, You went resolutely to the cross. Because You knew that in the cross You would purchase our freedom. We knew that You knew that in the cross You would bring glory to God. God, I pray that as we live our lives, uh, specifically as it relates to our government and our country and our employers, God, we would pray that we would be people of virtue. People who show respect to those around us. People who show grace to those who don't deserve it. And God, we pray that as we do that, as we endure injustice for your glory. God, we pray that you would point people to yourself. That through our suffering, through our hurt, you would bring people to yourself. That they would come to know the joy and peace of what it means to know you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.